Let's take our Bibles and turn to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. I'm going to be looking at verses 1 through 12 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab that pew Bible. There are several uh, throughout the row. Uh, that's page 834 in that pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, um, that is, you don't have a Bible at home even, uh, we offer that uh, pew Bible to you as a gift. Please take that and uh, read it. <clears throat> and um, it's a joy for us to offer that to you. We've been studying the Gospel of John uh, together. Uh, that is John the Apostle's record of the life and ministry of Jesus. We've proceeded through the theological prologue uh, there found in the beginning, uh, verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, into the life of Jesus by way of the testimony of John the baptizer. And we have been introduced to some of Jesus' first followers. And today, we begin to see, as Jesus had said to these followers, greater things than these you will see. Uh, so, this is the first miraculous sign of Jesus that we see here in verses 1 through 12 of John chapter 2. If you're able to, would you please stand with me? I'm going to read aloud and invite you to follow along. Reading from the... ESV this morning, John, uh, the apostle under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. You may be seated. That is the reading of God's Word in the New Testament reading. May it be a blessing to you as you've heard it read aloud. I would ask you now once again to join me in prayer. Lord, we are grateful this morning as we open your Word to know that uh, we have your very Word in our hands. Uh, Lord, inspired in the original autographs and preserved for us uh, through many thousands of manuscripts and translated into our own language today. Lord, what a blessing and we also know, Lord, that your Holy Spirit, who attended to the inspiration of these words in the original autographs, now is in attendance in regard to our hearts and minds, that he would illuminate our understanding and our application of these truths this morning. And so we pray for that. Lord, I pray that you would um, humble me still through this text and get me out of the way, Lord, that we may only see your glory this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So uh, I mentioned at the beginning our uh, vacation. Uh, we drove nearly 3,000 miles in those two weeks, uh, driving from here to Florida and then to Georgia and then back to Peoria. Uh, by the way, we love home. Kay uh, always asks me, Kay Sutton always says, are you glad to be home? And I always say yes, and she's asking me that because she's afraid I would, for some reason, want to move to Florida in the middle of winter. Um, But no, we love home. We love Peoria as our home. Well, if you take long road trips, one of the things you know and see are lots and lots of signs, lots of highway signs that are pointing you to places uh, that are destinations or billboards advertising places you might like to go and visit. Some of those signs show up, many of them and most of them show up way before you ever uh, get to the place. Uh, if you've ever traveled on Interstate 75, uh, or actually Interstate 24 on your way to Interstate 75 uh, through Tennessee, as soon as you enter into uh, the state of Tennessee, you immediately begin seeing signs for two places. One says, see what? Rock City. The other one says, see Ruby Falls. Right? As soon as you enter into the state, it's like you see the barn with the black top paint and it says, see Rock City. And then you see a picture of the falls, see Ruby Falls. Now, when you begin to see those signs, unless you know your geography well, you are maybe unaware of the fact that you still have three hours until you get to Rock Falls or uh, to Ruby, I mean, Rock City or Ruby Falls. Uh, you're, you're still three hours away from these. Uh, attractions. In fact, they're completely on the other side of the state, the southern part of the state, before you enter into Georgia. They're in Chattanooga. These signs are pointing, though, to the destination. Uh, these signs are not the destination themselves. You can't get out of your car off the side of the road and look at the billboard and say, well, we've seen Rock City. By the way, it's not that spectacular, honestly. <laughs> it's probably pretty close if you get out and look at the billboard. Um, but uh, it's not the place, right? Um, nor, uh, which is more spectacular, actually, uh, if you get out and look at the sign for Ruby Falls. I, I would encourage you, go see Ruby Falls. Rock City is for another day. Um, Ruby Falls is, is quite spectacular. If you're interested in how those falls were discovered, I would love to share that story with you sometime. But it would be better if you went and heard from them. It's, it's awesome. But, but with the point being that when we see a sign for something, we are not there. You know, we see the sign and we recognize that it is pointing to a destination. You can be driving in Chicago and see a sign that says if you head south, uh, you'll, head, you'll get to Memphis. Well, clearly Memphis is a really far, uh, a long uh, way away from the city of Chicago. These signs are pointing to something. In, in a greater and more significant way, this is true of the miracles of Jesus, which are supernatural signs that point to who Jesus truly is and what he has come to do. They are signs that point back to the Old Testament prophecies about Messiah, and they are signs that point to his current ministry, what he is doing there upon earth, and they are pointing to ultimately what God is doing through that, through his uh, perfect life, death, and resurrection to the eternal state. There is a great biblical theological um, uh, capturing, if you will, within those miraculous signs of the Lord Jesus. And as we encounter those throughout our study of the Gospel of John, we will continue to unpack that 
as we go through. But basically, and you can see this written on the back of your worship folder there, the main point of this as we begin to unfold these signs is that the signs of Jesus point to the messianic signs of the Old Testament and the hope of who he truly is in the New Testament. And so that's what we begin to unfold and unpack together this morning as we look at this first of miraculous signs. An interesting one, to say the least, uh, but one that begins to unpack who Jesus truly is, what he has come to do. And so this morning I want us to see three steps in the first messianic sign of Jesus. And that really is, in in many senses, at least at first, what should be... uh, expanding in the mind of those who see these things happen is Jesus is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the promised one of the old covenant. And so we begin this morning seeing these, um, and we'll reference once again uh, that reason for these signs uh, in our sermon, which we found in John chapter 20 and began looking at our study of John there. We'll, we'll get there in a moment. But the first uh, step is this. There's a problem that is presented in verses 1 through 5. There's a problem presented here. We're not given many details concerning the who and what of this wedding except the place and time on the third day and at Cana. Now it's probable that this is the third day after Jesus has met Nathaniel and Philip Um, that they now are going to this wedding, and it is in Cana, which is where Nathanael is from. Uh, Perhaps this is the wedding of one of Jesus' new followers. Some do say it's possibly Nathanael's wedding. Perhaps this is the reason, as we see in here, for the invitation. Again, look at it. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Clearly, Mary is a part of this celebration. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now, keep in mind, at this point, we're only aware of five followers of Jesus. He has not, at least it seems at this point, uh, has all of his 12 followers. But still, this is um, six uh, additional people that are invited to this wedding. So, you know, whether or not this is Nathaniel's wedding or not, that's speculation. Uh, But we know that they are at this wedding in Cana and Galilee that Jesus has, has been in this region and is now at this wedding with his disciples. So, um, this is uh, traveling far to be somewhere. Jesus is already in the region, and he continues to travel to this wedding with his disciples. We see some uh, of the, the loyalty that's already beginning to build in his um, followers here as they follow him to this wedding and so forth. Um, Now, the next part of this, kind of just foundational, right? They're at this wedding, but what happens next? Much ink has been spilt over how we're to understand this exchange between uh, Jesus' mother, Mary, and himself. So, um, let's not read too much into these things, and let's understand uh, some of the context, meaning the historical context in which these words are found. Mary presents the problem to Jesus in uh, chapter 2 and verse 3. It says, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? <clears throat> My hour has not yet come. And then his mother said to his servants, Do whatever he tells you. <clears throat> Mary presents the problem to Jesus. Um, it seems fairly clear. Mary knows the hosts of the wedding... And this may be to save them from some embarrassment. I mean, she's already present at this wedding. It seems pretty clear. She is aware of who these people are. 
It may be that they're, um, they come from maybe kind of like a medium kind of means um, and, uh, or maybe even poor. Now, you have to understand something about uh, ancient Near East weddings and Jewish weddings in particular. These festivals uh, around weddings could last up to a week in time. Um, and we would assume, and I think it's safe to assume, that even if someone was on the lower spectrum of income, that they would try to follow this, um, uh, this way of doing things. And uh, this would be about that amount of time for this wedding. People would come and go. Um, it would be a big celebration. She also, Mary also clearly knows that Jesus can do something about this because Jesus understands the implication of her statement by her asking him to do something about it. Now, some, some commentators will state um, she was dependent upon him <clears throat> as her firstborn because likely by this time Joseph has passed away. But the text seems to lean more towards the idea of an anticipation of Jesus doing something because she understands who he is. Um, this is something, uh, as S. Lewis Johnson points out, that has been mainly secretive. Only certain close family members know who Jesus really is. The, the reality is, and we'll actually see this in the Gospel of John, most people saw Jesus as an illegitimate child because he was, Mary was pregnant with Jesus before she and Joseph were married. So if any sort of public knowledge is known, it's that. And, and, and Lewis Johnson, again, I think rightly states that this is probably an opportunity for her to be vindicated. Uh, this is um, something, this is someone, I'm sorry, special here who can do something about this. Um, she comes to him, though, and says they're out of wine. And Jesus responds uh, concerning this, um, that his hour has not come yet. We'll look at this in just a moment. Generally, people struggle with the first part of the statement. Jesus' response of, woman, what does this have to do with me? First, again, we must remember not to read our context back into the context in which Jesus is saying this. Second, this is tied to a Hebrew idiom. Jesus is using a Hebrew phrase here, which literally means, what, me, and you. And Jesus actually adds the, the term woman, gune, at the end of this phrase. Another thing to remember, Jesus cannot sin and does not sin. So what, how are we to take this? In other words, we look at that and say, you know, woman, like that's how we kind of take that, right? It's kind of like this disrespectful tone because that's how we uh, tend to hear it in our language. But what Jesus is doing here, and I think because of adding to the end of this phrase, my hour has not yet come, he ties this to a kingdom priority. This shows a kingdom priority over a personal priority. Remember in the timeline of Jesus' life, he has already stated in his interaction with his parents that he must be about his father's will, his father's business. And that is doing God the Father's will while he is on earth. Remember that exchange in the temple when they can't find uh, Jesus, probably likely uh, 12, 13 years old. He's uh, in the temple um, exchanging uh, interactions, asking questions with the religious leaders. And his parents come, Jesus, where have you been? And he says, hey, I must be about my father's 
business. This is this same kind of an idea here, the same kind of an interaction with Mary. Uh, this is not disrespectful, but it is, it is sharp and pointed to the point. This is a kingdom priority that I am on now. Uh, we have to remember in the sequence of events, Jesus has already been baptized by John the Baptist. And what has occurred? Um, the inauguration of his earthly ministry has occurred. And so he is now set to kingdom purposes. And this hour that he mentions here is the hour of the cross. It's the hour at which he must suffer for the sins of uh, his people, as it says. And clearly there is victory over that sin. At the resurrection it is shown to be that he has received the wrath that sinners deserve. And what we understand is that hour is marching ever closer. And in these events, these signs are an unfolding of that and that marching toward the cross. So this is all he is saying. This is not a sinful response. It is an adjustment of kingdom priorities. And this is a fair point of application for us. God will make adjustments to what we think needs to be done in order for his will to be accomplished. And in that, we must submit. We may have, it says in, in, in the Proverbs, I think, or the Psalms, one of those. I'm pulling this off the top of my head, so please forgive me. You know, the, the, the steps of a man are ordered by the Lord. We may think we know what we are going to do, but those steps are ordered by the Lord. This is, um, in, in a sense, a rebuke to Mary. It is a loving and it is a holy and righteous rebuke for the lord can do no other but it is a rebuke um uh, kostenberger states this is a pattern we see in some new testament passages of request rebuke and then assistance but jesus in this rebuke is saying this is a kingdom priority the kingdom priority is jesus's coming hour everything is leading to the cross the resurrection and jesus's glorification each step along the way marches ever closer to this each step reveals more of His glory. And this is all in God's timing. The signs of Jesus point to the messianic signs of the Old Testament and the hope of who He truly is in the New Testament. Mary's response to this is to tell the servants, do whatever He says. She recognizes now the kingdom priority. And if, if Jesus says nothing at this point, then it is fulfilling the will of his father. If he does something, it is not because she has asked him to do it. It is because he recognizes this is the will of God the Father in this moment. Do whatever he says. Mary understands that whatever happens, it is in the hands of Jesus now. One of the things we must recognize, thinking about Mary as the mother of Jesus is she is at the crossroads of Jesus' humanity and divinity here. He is her son concerning his humanity. But she is also aware of her role as what, what we say in the Greek is theotokos, bearer of God. That is that Jesus is truly human, but in her womb was one who was truly God and truly man. She was apprised of this by the angel who came to her and told her what was going to happen. This is who he is. This is what he's going to accomplish. And now she steps back. I think we can really see a, a change here in, in a relationship with Jesus and Mary. She steps back now and says, and, and we don't see these words here, but we begin to recognize this in her. 
He is the Lord. He is my Lord. Remember in her song of reception of this blessing from God, and and Luke does say she is highly favored by God. But in this reception of that, she says, Blessed be the, my God and Savior. She knows she needs a Savior. Mary is a sinner and she knows it. And in this moment, I think we see that crossroads of purposes here. Yes, she is his mother. In fact, from the cross, we'll see Jesus uses this phrase, woman, once again. Here is your son. Speaking of John, we think. Meaning that John was now going to take that position of the first son and care for the widow mother of Jesus. I think it's interesting that the same phrase is used here. It's almost as if now she's stepping back, saying, He is my Lord, but He reminds her again with the same phrase at the cross, You are still my mom, and I'm going to take care of you, and John's going to be the one to do that. But there is an eye opening moment here for her do whatever He says. This is the sovereignty of God being played out before Mary's eyes, before the disciples' eyes, and a few servants, as we'll see. Dear ones, this is the reality we all must face. Christ is both the second Adam and Adam's creator. He comes and puts on humanity to be the second Adam, to succeed where Adam has failed. But he is the creator of the universe. All these theological truths are coming and crashing in here in this moment in the earthly ministry of Jesus. He is Lord of all, including this moment in his earthly life where he is in control of this situation. While the problem has been presented, now we see, secondly, the sign performed in verses 6 through 10. The sign performed. And John gives us a little bit of some context here. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Um, before a meal, and especially before something as big of a feast, a week-long feast like this, there were um, purification rites that the Jews would go through. Excuse me. Uh, you, you heard a little bit about that um, in uh, Pastor Brett's sermon last week about the uh, woman who comes and cleans Jesus' feet. They had not performed those purification rites for uh, Jesus. Uh, Simon had not done that. This is the same idea, only at a bigger scale, because you have uh, possibly hundreds of people kind of leaving and going and showing up and all these kinds of things. And so you have to have these uh, water pots filled with uh, these reality, uh, or for the reality of these Jewish purifications. Jesus simply tells them to do something ordinary. (laughs) It would not be extraordinary to say, fill these water pots with water, right? (laughs) That's that's very ordinary. Fill these water pots with water. So they do as he says. And he tells them to draw some out and give it to the head waiter. So they did as he said. Now, it's evident from what we read next that Jesus has miraculously transformed the water into wine. Into wine. Now, for, for a moment here, I want us to just think about something. At this point, um, I want us to see the incognito nature of this sign. It is only seen by a few people at this wedding. Seemingly, no one, not even Mary after the fact, has drawn attention to this. Jesus Jesus does not publicly display his glory for the crowd at the wedding. He simply asks the servants to fill the jars. Now, what occurs 
at a molecular level, is quite amazing. Water is a simple compound of two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atom. While wine contains a large amount of water, wine is complex. Wine is made up of over 1,000 atomic compounds. So you have this simple two-compound with three atoms to now this 1,000 atomic compounds. Water is readily available, but also in the time of Christ, largely undrinkable. Wine is a process that takes time. And even in its most basic form, requires the crushing of grapes. In other words, there is work that needs to be done in order for wine to be produced. There is no simple way to introduce anything into water that therefore makes it wine. Jesus introduces no physical elements into these water pots, but from the time of the pots being filled to the brim, and then the servants drawing some out for the master of the feast, there is a miraculous molecular change from one thing to another. And this is evidenced by the quality of the wine, as seen in the remarks by the master of the feast of the bridegroom. But, but can we just for a moment pause and just recognize here what is happening is what Mary essentially has made a nod to, which is this. Do whatever he says. Because he is the sovereign Lord of the universe. He is the one who is able to say to water, become wine, and it becomes wine. He is the one who is able to say, light be, quite literally, in the first chapter of Genesis, and what was not there, ex nihilo, becomes what is there. He is the one who is able to say, Uh, to the hard human heart made of stone, become flesh, and it is regenerated. This is my sovereign God here in this passage. And yours as well, if you know him. Look at what is stated in verses 9 and 10. So they took it, they took the now what has become wine to the master of the feast. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, they're the only other ones, by the way, besides the disciples, Jesus and Mary, that understand what's happened here. Again, very incognito, very small crowd here. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Let's break this down a little bit. He tasted it. This tasting brings a reaction. Everyone, he says to the bridegroom, serves the good wine first. When people have drunk freely, then the poor wine is brought. You have kept the good wine until now. This is basically the sort of breakdown of this passage. Implication. The good wine is put out first because when people drink freely, the quite literal meaning of that in the Greek is that they have drunk beyond what is advisable. In other words, they've become tipsy or possibly even drunk at this point. After the people have drunk freely and gotten to the point where they are, guess what? 
they're not going to notice the poorer quality of the later wine. Jesus, however, has made the best wine. How? He is the creator of the universe. By the way, this is real wine. It is wine people could have gotten drunk on. That's the whole meaning of what is said previously. When he says, the good wine is put out first and people drink freely, therefore they're not going to recognize the poorer wine that's put out. Just like every good gift from God, it can be abused. Now listen, just a side note here on sanctification. You can choose to not drink wine. But please don't insist this is not real wine in this passage. The passage says that it is. Or that those who choose to drink wine without abuse are sinning. If you have questions about this, you can come and see me later. But that is the implication of this is real wine. But the main point of this is this is a real miraculous intervention of Jesus into a situation by which his manifest glory is seen. Only seen by a few, but his manifest glory is seen. The signs of Jesus point to the messianic signs of the Old Testament and the hope of who he truly is in the New Testament. We need to remember that Jesus' glory as the eternal Son of God is veiled until by God's will it is revealed, and right now it is revealed to only a select few, as we see in our final point. Number three, the glory manifested the glory manifested look at verse 11 this the first of his signs jesus did at cana and galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him first sign remember a sign points to something this points to the manifested glory of the lord to his disciples, to his mother, to the wait staff, that's it at this point. But that's what this is. Jesus' glory as the eternal Son of God is veiled. We know this. This manifestation of his glory is simply um, given to just a few. But we begin to see this unveiling more and more and more. Throughout the Gospels, especially the Gospel of John. As we'll be reminded in a moment, this is what John is focusing in on. He is focusing in on these signs. Right now, small group. By John chapter 11, he has raised a man from the dead. You cannot hide this. This is information that's going to be spread throughout all the land. You you, you cannot hide. Someone has been dead for three days... So that the disciples say to Jesus in the resurrection of Lazarus, I like the way the the King James puts it, Lord, surely by now he stinketh. You cannot hide this. This is the manifest glory of God. So much so that what do the religious leaders say? We must kill him and we must kill Lazarus because we have to get rid of the evidence. God is unveiling the Lord Jesus Christ. And that final, those final days before his crucifixion, there is no doubt that anybody who was in that region at that time could not surmise this is the Messiah. And they kill him anyway. 
Now that is the plan of God. But Peter in Acts chapter 2 says that this is the plan of God that comes about because of the wickedness of mankind in his heart. Which, ironically, is what is needed for the wickedness of man's heart. We need one to be in our place. Bearing the wrath of God that we deserve in order that we don't have to bear that wrath and in order that we can be adopted into the family of God and made His children. And and I think it's so interesting here that in this small group of people who know this, it is the disciples who believe in Him. Look at what it says. Verse 11, This, the first signs, first of His signs, Jesus did at Cana and Galilee. And manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Jesus had promised them they would see greater things than Jesus knowing Nathaniel was under the fig tree. And he does not disappoint three days later. Now that's not saying that they didn't believe in him already. But what we have to see is in this unveiling of the manifest glory of the Son, eternal Son of God... There is a continued, compounded belief of the disciples. They continue to grow in that belief. They're amazed. Who is this that can not only turn water to wine, he can still the storm? Who is this? Carson explains the next three chapters are meant to show a transition from the old to the new. The old purification laws to the new wine of the kingdom. The old temple, where Jesus talks about the temple being destroyed and him building it up in three days to the risen Lord. With uh, Nicodemus' new birth for new creation. With the woman at the well in Samaria from water from Jacob's well to the living water in Jesus. His disciples believed in him. They continued to believe in him. He is who he said he is. Why verse 12? Look what it says. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. We're going to look at this verse again next week, but just thinking about it in the context of where it falls here after verse 11. Remember again, this sign was given only to a few They left there with only those they came with. In the future, many will follow Jesus. Some will follow him and just desire to see bread multiplied and fish multiplied so their bellies can be filled. And then when he begins to tell them things like, you need to eat my body and drink my blood, they leave. Many will follow him because they want to see the miraculous signs or to have um, their own bellies filled. It's interesting that it doesn't say anything about Jesus' brothers believing in him. In fact, they don't. They think he's absolutely insane. There will come a day where many will follow Jesus. The uh, The signs of Jesus point to the Messianic signs of the Old Testament and the hope of who he truly is in the New Testament. But in this first manifestation, we see the purpose of the sign stated. His disciples believed in him. And this should take our mind to John chapter 20. Turn with me there. John chapter 20. 
looking at verses 30 and 31. Once again, being reminded of the purpose of why John is writing what he's writing. Look at what it says. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We come to the crux of the issue this morning. Have you believed in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ? Who from this side of the cross has been manifested to be the Son of God truly? Who died in the place of sinners, taking the wrath that they deserved, rose victoriously three days later and has ascended waiting for the day when his enemies will be made his footstools and then he returns for us. What a glorious truth. Have you believed that? If you have, my question to you this morning is this. How are you continuing to trust in the one who is the creator and sustainer of the universe? You may be at a crisis moment in your life. It's not that um, the wine has run out, but at some other moment in your life right now that you are facing, that you are saying, is God faithful? The answer to that is yes, He is. And I want to remind you of that this morning. Our belief, just like the disciples, may be simple at first, but it is expanded and compounded over time as we open the Word of God, and the Spirit speaks to our hearts through the Word of God. And our trust is ever strengthened in Him so that in those moments we say, yes, He is the creator and sustainer of the universe. Uh, He is my Father and He cares for me. This is expressed nowhere greater than at the cross where the one who did not deserve what He got gave us not only the forgiveness of sins, but his own righteousness. Are you continuing to believe? Belief in Christ is not just an event that happens earlier in our life. It is a continuation of belief until we see him face to face. It's not to say there aren't moments where we struggle. Therefore, we need one another. We need the body of Christ. We need to be committed to one another in that way to say that I'm going to, in my life, sacrifice time and energy into your life so that you can be encouraged by these truths, just as I need you to do for me. That's what the community of Christ is for. That's why we take seriously church membership and covenant membership, that we're covenanting together to be this to each other day in and day out. Not just a Hey, how you doing? Greeting on Sunday morning. But throughout the week, pointing each other to the Lord Jesus because this side of eternity is difficult. We need to be reminded. We need to be pointed back to the Lord Jesus Christ. How are you in community encouraging others in their belief? And then lastly, if you have not trusted in Christ, Listen to what he has done. The God of the universe, the Son of God, eternal Son of God, the one through whom all things were created, came to earth and put on humanity. The creator of humanity putting on humanity, fulfilling the law that Adam and Israel could not. On the cross, taking the wrath we deserved and rising again on the third day to show his victory over sin and death. 
awaiting the time when he comes to get his bride. There's going to be a wedding feast that far exceeds what we see in the wedding at Cana. Amen. We're all going to be there if we're in Christ, celebrating together, drinking the new wine of the kingdom together with the bridegroom who shed his blood. (laughs) We come to a feast once a month in this church to commemorate not only that Jesus gave his body and his blood for us, but to be reminded that there is that feast coming where we will be present with him and we'll be able to reach out and touch him. And we'll drink that new wine together forever in the kingdom. Would you pray with me? Lord, you have been so gracious and so merciful to reveal yourself to us in your word. Lord, if all we had was natural revelation... We would know that there is a God, but we would be condemned by that knowledge. And we would continue to fight and struggle and suppress that reality in our unrighteousness. Yet, Lord, you have revealed yourself to us in your word, for which we say thank you. For those of us who know you, Lord, may we be excited to um, be reminded today of your goodness to us and who you are and what you have done, and be willing to come alongside of one another and encourage each other in that while it is still called today. And to tell others, Lord, to proclaim the good favor of the Lord upon those who do not deserve it. And for those who are here in our midst who do not know you, I pray that today would be the day that they would trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we would trust you yet again to take stone hearts and miraculously change them into fleshy hearts, ready to receive the implanted word, to receive the Holy Spirit, to trust in Christ, to believe in him, and to continue believing in him. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.